For those of you who might not know it, um, my name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here with Christ Redeemer Church. And uh, as I've had the opportunity to preach lately, we have been moving through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to go ahead and and keep doing that today. We're going to move into chapter 3. Actually, we'll get into chapter 3 this week, and Lord willing, then we'll finish out chapter 3 next Sunday. So if you uh, have your Bibles with you, you're welcome to open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you and you would like one, you can raise your hand. Uh, Greg will make sure you get one. And uh, you can actually take that Bible home with you also if you, um, if you don't have one at home. But we will read from there in just a few minutes. Uh, now chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, I would say, is one of contrasts. Okay, we see the, the godness of God on the one hand. He is the, we see that he is the architect, he is the designer of times and seasons. And then on the other hand, we see that we are not God. God on the one hand, us on the other. And we are limited by the times and the seasons, and we cannot fully understand God's plans. Um, And so you can see in the bulletin there that the title of this message, um, I've given it the title, God is God, we are not, so what? And uh, all I want to do this morning is basically unpack the parts of that title. So three parts to the message this morning. Number one, God is God. Number two, we are not. And number three, so what? Um, In other words, in light of the facts that God is God and we are not, well, how, how does that impact us? How, how should we respond to that in light of um, our verses that we'll look at today? Okay, So let's pray, and then we will uh, read. And we'll read actually verses 1 to 15. I know the bulletin says 1 to 22. We're going to pick up after verse 15 in next week's sermon, so we'll look at verses 1 to 15. But um, let's pray, and then we'll unpack these things. So Lord, I do pray that you would join us now uh, in a unique way uh, as we gather to uh, hear your word preached. And I pray that you would open my heart and my mind. You'd open the hearts and minds of everyone who hears me this morning to engage with you, to experience your nearness this morning, that you would transform us as a result of this message into precisely the, the people that you want us to be. That this morning, all aspects of this morning, and this sermon included, would be a a piece of your working in our lives to change us to be more the people you want us to be for your glory and for our joy. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Here we go. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear, a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? 
I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what is driven away. Okay, so I said I think that we see contrast here. Um, God is God. We are not. So first of all, God is God. Meaning that the God of the Bible, the God that's referred to here in Ecclesiastes 3, he is the one and only creator of the universe. He is the one and only sovereign over creation. He is the architect or the ordainer of all times and seasons for all of the affairs of the universe. And very much in contrast to the futility of life that we have seen already now a lot in the first two uh, chapters, in contrast to that futility, um, that futility expressed, for example, in the fleeting nature of life as we've looked at that, uh, or, or in the seemingly uh, purposeless cycles of all of life. That can be the cycles of nature, that can be the cycles of our, our work day, um, our work schedules, our daily schedules. In contrast to all of that, God and his plans are permanent, and they are stable, and they are trustworthy. And we get pointed to that, I think, in verse 11. So it says there, verse 11, he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Or as other translations put it, God has made everything fit beautifully in its appropriate time. And then verse 14. Verse 14, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God has done this. God is God, and this is what God does as God. And so we get this picture of God um, creating with design and with purpose. Um, I wonder how, how many of you know what a cruciverbalist is any idea what a cruciverbalist is? I didn't know until about two hours ago. A cruciverbalist is a person who makes crossword puzzles. And uh, I bring that up only to say that God is like the master cruciverbalist, okay? I mean, he creates this universe with thoughtfulness, with reason, with intentional design. Okay, so if we look back at verse 1 then, back to the start of the chapter, it says there that for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then it goes on there with a poem in the following verses, verses 2 to 9, basically giving us examples of really the, the totality of human experience. Birth, death, and everything 
in between. And the writer is saying, again, that there is an appropriate time for all of these things. There is an appropriate time for the range of human, uh, range of activity that makes up human life. Activity, emotions, everything. In other words, there is purpose and intentional design in the universe. There's, there's intended purpose and design for how we go about all of the range of human activities in the universe, especially as it relates to how we would relate to one another. And, uh, and God did this. This was God's work as the master cruciverbalist, we could say. This is his work. Um, uh, verse 11 again. The, the, for, for God to make everything beautiful in its time. That is to say that God has determined the appropriate expression of all human endeavors. God has determined that. God has designed humans and he's designed the universe in a certain way. And he intends that we would engage in the universe in a certain way. And, and insofar as we would engage with life and the universe um, according to God's designs, that's beautiful. That's good. That's what makes our actions beautiful and good or not, that they are in line with God's designs. Uh, love, for example, usually we think of love, we think that's pretty good. Love, that's a good thing. Well, it depends what you love. It depends how you express that love. It depends what is the object of your love. It is possible to, to commit to something or to kit, commit to someone, um, uh, to really care for something or someone very deeply, but that in a way that is in fact contrary to God's will. And in that case, then that love would be bad. That love would actually not be beautiful. That love would be not in line with God's plan, and so it would be ugly. That would be ugly. Um, so there's a, there's a popular slogan out there nowadays that you might see. You find it on t-shirts, you find it on bumper stickers, usually connected with a rainbow flag of some sort. Um, and it says, love is love, or love equals love. Well, maybe, not really. I mean, it depends entirely on how we would define love and how we would express that love and the object of that love's affection. Um, is that love expressed in line with God's design for love? And if so, it's good and it's beautiful. And if it's not, then it's bad and it's ugly. It's ugly. So love is an example, um, but verses 2 through 9, um, for example there, um, you have... Uh, um, sorry, I lost my spot there. So you have love as an example and all of the the things that are there in verses 2 through 9 in that poem essentially gives us more examples. Really, the same, we're just saying that the whole range of human activities, uh, whole range of human emotions, these have their appropriate expressions. Um, and having appropriate expressions, then they also have inappropriate expressions. But what I want to say here, what I want us to see as what I think really is the the, the bigger point that the writer is trying to make here, uh, and that is, again, that this is God's design. 
this, this pattern, this way of things, this is God's design. design. This, this is God's being God. It's God doing what in part actually uh, identifies him or defines him as God. Uh, from, from verse 11 again. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And uh, verse 14 again. Whatever God does endures forever. So the bigger point here is that God is this master architect or cruciverbalist, we could say. He's the, he's the creator and the designer and the sustainer of all times and seasons of all of the, the affairs of the universe. Everything, for everything, there is a season um, uh, and a time for every matter under heaven, and God determines that. He determines the right and the wrong timing of everything. God dictates when and where and how any of our activity or our emotions would be appropriate and therefore beautiful uh, or not. He determines these things, and whatever he does endures forever. And so he is powerful, he is wise, he is creative in absolutely unparalleled ways. God truly is unique. This is his being God. This is, and this kind of of master planning and this power to actually carry out those plans, this is part of the DNA of his godness. This is what it, part, in part of what it means for him to be God. It's part of a definition of being God. And uh, verse 15, I think, highlights this as well. Verse 15, it says there, the first part of the verse, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And if we stop right there with verse 15, stop at that point of the verse, um, remember that this kind of um, repetition, what's been is coming again, and it's going to be again, and it's coming again, remember that 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 kind of repetition um, from one perspective, and very much from the perspective of the writer in earlier chapters, that's very frustrating, or it certainly can be very frustrating. That, in fact, is part of the nature of the futility that is so often talked about in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we looked at that um, back in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 9. For example, um, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Now that sounds a lot like verse 15 here in chapter 3. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. But in... In chapter 3 here, verse 15, in, in, in this context, that statement is not uh, written, we don't see it with, with as much angst and, and with as much uh, frustration, uh, with a sense of the same kind of futility as we see in chapter 1. Here, it's really in the context uh, not of an otherwise fatalistic worldview, but here it's in the context of God's godness. Uh, in the context of God's sovereignty, God doing what he does as one who makes everything beautiful in its time, as one who's wise to design everything to fit appropriately into its time. Not meaningless repetition, but intentional design. And then verse 15 continues, and it says, God seeks what has been driven away. Um, Now that line... uh, that line there, uh, God seeks what has been driven away. A ton of debate, actually, about what just on earth that means. Um, 
uh, or exactly how that should get translated uh, from the Hebrew. Actually, um, of the six English translations that I'll typically kind of take a peek at as I'm preparing for a sermon, of those six translations, every single one of them translated it differently. Every single one. Uh, so that's, that feels futile to me. Um, but uh, most of them translate it in, in a way that, in essence, means, I think, something like this. We could paraphrase verse 15 to say, what has passed is past. And God seeks to repeat what has passed. So, in other words, God is in control of time. God is in control uh, of time. So for all the range of human activities, there's a time for this, there's a time for that, but step back and see that God is sovereign over time itself. Over time itself. God determines the times, he determines the seasons, within which we conduct all of this human activity of ours, whatever that might be. And to do so, again, is part of what it means to be God. This is how we see that God of the Bible is God, in fact. And uh, so I said this was a chapter of uh, uh, contrast, so that's God and what he does, some of what he does. On the other hand, uh, we are not God, right? Um, Captain Obvious up here. We are not God. God is God as evidenced by what I've mentioned. He's, he's, he's the knowledgeable, wise, creative architect and sustainer of all the times and seasons. We, on the other hand, are not. Pretty much evidenced by the exact opposite. We are creatures and we're very much limited by, uh, very much subjected to time. God is God. We are not. Um, and our not being God, I think, is especially highlighted and evidenced in these verses um, by the limits we see on our knowledge. Okay, we're limited in our knowledge. So if you look at verse 11 again, knowledge, understanding. Verse 11 again says that he has made, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so eternity is in our hearts, meaning, I think, that we know intuitively that there is more to life than this present existence. And, and there's this intuitive sense inside of us that we want to understand that. We want that to somehow make sense. And we know intuitively, I think, that, that God has, in fact, been doing something from beginning to end. And we want to get a sense of what all that means, and yet we're limited uh, in between this beginning and end in a very finite moment in time. And so we simply cannot figure this out. We can't see it all from beginning to end. There's a, there's, it's like there's a certain ignorance that is built into us, even by design, as finite creatures, rather than, by contrast, our infinite creator. So it seems like I think we know intuitively that all of life fits together and it makes sense somehow, or uh, at least we hope that it does, but we just can't see the bigger picture such that we could erase all mysteries. And man, that can actually be just crazy frustrating uh, sometimes. 
And um, I actually, I think this, that's, this is the temptation by the writer here. He's tempted to be just crazy frustrated at this limitation. Um, in fact, this is part of what the nature, this is part of the nature of futility, again, that we see really throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, by way of analogy, you could, you could think of trying to put together a, a thousand-piece puzzle without the benefit of the box top. I mean, that could be... Uh, crazy frustrating. I mean, and, and actually we would pick up a piece and we, would, and we would know, well, there's design and there's purpose in this piece. It's a puzzle piece. So by definition, it has design. And by definition, it fits someplace into this larger piece. But we don't see the box top. So we just, completing this puzzle just seems terribly impossible, confusing, frustrating. Uh, we would be tempted, I think, just to give up by seeing, seeing the futility in all of that. Well, we're not God. We, we, we don't um, see the box top of life, we could say, or the box top of eternity, anyway. Not in totality. We catch glimpses by God's grace. He does help us to see a lot of things, a lot of very important things, but not everything. And uh, there's still plenty of mystery. And, in fact, God painted that box top. He designed that box top or that puzzle as creatures, we're just parts of that, of that, of that, of what he's designed. So God is God, and we are not, um, in those two ways. Um, so part three of this message then, so what? Okay, so in light of the fact that God is God, in light of the fact that we are not God, um, how should we respond to that in light of these verse, these first 15 verses, um, of uh, Ecclesiastes? And, and simply put, I would say the answer is um, that we should fear God and enjoy life. Fear God and enjoy life. It's a simple answer, uh, I think, uh, at the face, on the face of it. Um, and actually, back, back several sermons ago, I, I mentioned that I think that this really is the overriding theme over the whole book of Ecclesiastes. And, that, and we see just kind of a microcosm of it here in this particular chapter, I think. We want to be real about our circumstances. God is God. We are not. And that can oftentimes be terribly frustrating given our uh, limitations. Um, but rather than getting frustrated in response to that, the appropriate response that God would call us to, to would be to fear him in light of that and to enjoy life. Okay, so let me unpack that a little bit. Um, first of all, um, uh, fear God, to fear God. Verse 14, in fact, says that God has done all that he's done so that we would fear him. So if you look at verse 14 again, he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. So that's certainly an appropriate response, that we would fear God. Um, well, what does that mean? What, what does it mean to fear God? Um, well, to say that we should fear God is not to say that we should kind of live in, in, in dread or terror of God. It's, it's not to say that we would be afraid of God as if he's kind of some cosmic bully who's just ready to smack us as soon as we uh, step out of line in some way, shape, or form. Um, that's not what it is to fear God, not in this context. In this context, 
Fear of God really is, you've probably heard this before, it's essentially reverence for God. It's a respect for God. It's, it's to revere God because he's God, because of who he is and because of what he's done very much in contrast to who we are and to our limitations. And, but, but part of the way that we do that, part of the way that we express our fear of God is, is choosing to live in accord with what he says is best for us. To live in accord with what he determines and defines is what's best for us individually and what's best for human flourishing in general. It's to, it's to make a commitment to live according to God's judgment on those things, on what is good for us and for humanity. We could say that to fear God um, is essentially to orient our lives around him and his ordering of life. So it'd be like God is the sun, so to speak. We are a planet, and, and our lives as planets revolve around him as the sun, not the other way around. See that. Live in light of that. That is to fear God in this context. So for all of the range of human activity that's represented, for example, by the, the poem in uh, verses 2 through 9, all the range of human activity if we will fear God, that will mean that we, we try to understand his designs as best we can, given our limitations. We accept our limitations in that, and we try to align our activity to accord with those designs. As best we can. As best we can. So we fear God in that way. Now there is a fear of God that is more like being afraid of God. Being afraid of God, especially afraid of his judgment, um, as we might live outside of those lines of God's designs. And uh, whether or not we fear God in that way is going to depend entirely on how we would respond to Jesus. It will depend entirely upon how we respond to Jesus, because it is true, actually, that none of us... Um, live in line with God's designs perfectly. Yet that's what he calls us to. Perfect obedience. And so God would be right then to condemn us. He would be right to judge us. So um, that's true, but, but God, remember, has made everything beautiful in its time. Okay? And Galatians 4.4 4, says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth Jesus. He sent Jesus. Why? Why did he send Jesus? He sent Jesus to redeem us from our choices to live outside, to step outside the line of God's designs. And now, or, or how did he do that? Well, Romans 5, 6. While we were still, in, still weak, at the right time, it says, Romans 5, 6. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time, Jesus died for us. If we will accept that, if we will receive that, then, then God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's, that, that is the most robust expression of God's love. See, Jesus lived the full range of human activities and emotions in perfect step with God's 
designs. And then as perfect as he was, he then was killed on the cross in order to absorb God's wrath in our place and turn God toward us in favor. In favor, not judgment, not punishment, favor. And uh, Ephesians 1.10 says that this salvation in Christ is God's plan, he says, for the fullness of time. And it says in Ephesians 1.11, that tells us that, that all of this is in line with, quote, the purpose of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God makes everything beautiful in its time. And by his love and grace, those who are trusting in Jesus for it will in fact occupy a very beautiful place in a very beautiful plan. So hear that clearly. If you, when we're called to fear God, hear this clearly, what we mean by that. With respect to, um, or I I should say, if, if we're trusting in Jesus for our forgiveness, for our favor with God, then 1 John 4.18, 1 John 4.18 is for you. There it says that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So, so that fear, that with respect to punishment for our sins, that's not the fear here we're talking about in Ecclesiastes 3. At, not, at least not for us who are trusting or who know God's love through, through Christ. But again, just to bring it back, um, this, what this fear is, is to, res- is to show reverence for God, to show deference to God. Um, and it's a life that's devoted to live in line with his designs, which Jesus already did for us perfectly. He already did what he's called us to do perfectly. And so, so fear God. That's, that's one response to this fact that we're not God and he is. Uh, secondly then, enjoy life. Um, in light of this fear of God and in light of uh, what Jesus has done for us on, on our behalf, enjoy life. So verses 12 to 13 again says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Verse 13, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now in the immediate context of Ecclesiastes 3 here, I would say that this counsel, it's, it is simply, it's pretty straightforward actually, in the immediate context. We would eat, we would drink, we would take pleasure in all of our toil. In other words, don't get frustrated, don't get embittered because of our limited knowledge and all of the implications of that. No, no. Don't do that. Rather, accept your limitations knowing that those limitations, our times, our seasons, everything are in the hands of God. And so concentrate on the present moments. Don't, don't worry necessarily about figuring out everything that God has done from beginning to end, the grand design from beginning to end. At least not insofar as doing so would drive us nuts, okay? Relax. Don't concentrate on that in that way. And uh, rather concentrate on present circumstances and the gifts that are available to us right now. What we can understand, what God we know has given us, not the least of which is our toil, 
our daily work, through which God provides the food that we eat. God provides, through our daily toil, the water we get to drink, the, the wine we get to drink, whatever it might be. These are God's gifts to you. Enjoy them. Enjoy them as gifts are intended to be enjoyed. So eat and drink, the writer says. In other words, get on with living. Get on with the full range of human activity. And and as we do that, choose, make a conscious decision to choose to see the good in our present circumstances. And focus on those things. And be grateful for those things in the here and now. So verse 12 again, eat and drink and take pleasure in your toil. This is God's gift to you. Okay, that would be the simple, straightforward counsel in the immediate context, I think, of Ecclesiastes 3. But for us today, there's something to build on there. Okay, for us today, we have the greater revelation of Jesus, of course. We have the greater revelation of the New Testament. And I think, in light of eating and drinking, the New Testament um, actually gives us some very significant insight into how this, this eating and drinking and pleasure really could, really should take shape for us. Okay, how does this work? Um, how can we really take hold of life in the here and now and make the most of it? Really maximize the joy that is available to us. How can we do that? How can we apply the spirit of Ecclesiastes 3, which is to enjoy life? How can we apply that spirit to our uh, today, to ourselves today? And for that answer, we go to 1 Corinthians 10. So if you can turn over to 1 Corinthians 10 with me, please. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it's a popular verse related to doing everything to the glory of God. And I mean everything, literally everything. Um, Whatever we do, do everything to the glory of God. So 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all, do it all to the glory of God. So eat and drink and take pleasure in your toil to the glory of God. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Our, our eating and our drinking, in other words, just getting on with all the range of human activity, um, whatever we do, finding pleasure in it all— All of this can, all of this should be related to living to the glory of God. It should be done mindful of God's glory, okay? That is, that is mindful of God's reputation, Um, uh, mindful of the truth about who God is and and what he has done and how how good he is, how great he is, how powerful he is, and so on. Uh, To live for God's glory is to live mindful and hopeful that, that we would actually, with our actions, make much of God, that, that people would see an accurate representation of God um, in our lives. Is that that we, would, we would live to help people be amazed by this God. Okay, this is what it means to live for the glory of God. And, um, and but we could mine that a little bit deeper. What does that mean here? How do we do that? How do we live with that mindset that God would be glorified in that way? Uh, well, keep reading in 1 Corinthians 10. So verses 32 to 33 now. So do everything for the glory of God, eating and drinking, whatever. Next verse, give no offense to Jews, 
or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I, uh, that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Do you see that connection? You see the connection there? Eat, drink, do anything and everything to the glory of God. How? Answer. By showing deference to others so that they would be saved. So that they would be saved. You see that connection? God can, God should be glorified in all of our eating and our drinking and taking pleasure in whatever we do. And he is glorified to the degree that we do all of that mindful, hopeful, even aiming to see other people saved. Setting aside our own interests, mindful not to offend, if at all possible, and, and, and having the aim to see others also embrace Jesus. Do you see that? Um, as we stand in, in awe, just amazed by what God has done for us in Jesus, then from that place, all of our eating and drinking and everything that we do gets repurposed now to glorify God. And we do that, we can do that, and we do do that um, as we do what we do, mindful and hopeful and aiming to see other people saved. So, so that they too can be amazed by Jesus and experience this joy that we have in, in Jesus. And that, I would say, actually is designed by God to be a source of joy for us. I actually think God has, has designed life such that seeing others saved should be one of the deepest sources of joy for us. That should really be a deep source of joy for us. In fact, it is a source of joy for God himself. Um, in Luke uh, chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus there, he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Repenting sinners getting saved. That's what glorifies God. That's what fills God's heart with joy. And so as we give ourselves to toiling to those same ends, we too will glorify God in that, and we too will fill our hearts with joy. And, uh, and this actually, I think, is how we then actually live out that reverence to God, that fear to God. It's how we express that. Him being God, us not being God. We we express reverence for him by our eating and our drinking and finding pleasure in all of our toil, doing all of that, mindful again in such a way that we're mindful of seeing people saved. So that, again, so that, so that they can experience joy themselves, which is ultimately joy in the fact that God himself finds delight and joy in his people who are saved in Christ. So imagine um, four roads. Four roads. Um, our daily lives, God's glory, God's joy, our joy. Okay? Our daily lives, God's joy, um, our joy. Um, what else did I say? Um, God's glory. I'm going to say it again. God's glory. Our daily lives, God's joy, our joy. Okay, all of these things, all of these things intersect at the crossroads of people getting saved, of people actually coming into the kingdom of God. All of those things come together in a beautiful uh, space and time. And so, 
God, please help us to have this mindset as we're interacting with our family and our friends and our neighbors and our classmates and our coworkers and others. I need God's help to think this way and to live in light of it. So we see contrast here in Ecclesiastes 3. We see that God is God. He's the knowledgeable, wise, creative, sovereign creator who makes everything fit beautifully, appropriately in its time. And we see that we, on the other hand, are not God, very much limited, especially in our knowledge. And we are called to respond to that then in fear of God and in enjoying life, to maximize joy in life. And what that really means for us gets built up and filled out for us um, in light of Jesus and the New Testament, which is to say again that our daily lives and and God's joy and our joy, um, God's glory, they all intersect at this point of people getting saved, people coming into the kingdom of God. Okay, so let's pray. Lord, um, I pray that you would help us to see this, that you would help us to have a fresh appreciation that you are God, completely sovereign, the the master cruciverbalist, that we would appreciate that afresh. We would appreciate afresh this morning that we are not you, and we cannot possibly understand everything you've done from beginning to end, so let's be careful about how we try to understand that, that you would help us to, in light of that, be humbled, to look to you with fear, with reverence, And we would get on with life, enjoying it as you give us good gifts every day. Help us, Lord, to be mindful of how your glory can be lived for, how we can live for your glory. Help us to be mindful of how we can really live for your joy. And all those things are not separate things. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.